1: guys welcome back to foul play. Gemma and I were joined here with Mike again. Mike, we're gonna hand the mic over to you. Literally, Mike, we're gonna give you the
2: mic.
1: Shoot. I'm bad with jokes. But go ahead. I'll let you jump in now. Thanks. Thanks, Shane and Gemma. I appreciate being back on your podcast. It's been really informative and interesting and I really appreciate the opportunity to work with you guys. I'm gonna go over episode seven right off the bat. It is not As much as a lot of the other episodes were, there's a lot of stuff that I couldn't observe stuff. It was pictures and all that stuff going on, but I'm going to do the best I can on the stuff I did pick up. So we're going to do timestamps just like we've done the other podcasts. So we'll start right off at episode seven at six minutes and 30 seconds. The scene is Jerry and is meeting Marilyn in some type of restaurant. I think it might have been a hotel restaurant. Coop's wife states that it makes me (laughs) cry to see you guys getting together again. And she's shaking her head no and covers her mouth when speaking. I don't know what she knows, or what Coop has told her, if anything. But it's kind of strange to see these deceptive cues on her. She's saying it's good to see you guys together while she's shaking her head no. And that's always a sign of deception. I don't know why she's doing that. Obviously, she wasn't asked a question, or if she was, it was edited out or something happened for editing. But if you look during that same timestamp, Poob has a look of contempt on his face as he's looking at his wife speaking. His mouth is turned down, his eyes are narrow, squinting almost, and he's glaring as if he doesn't like what she's saying. And he's just looking at it with that microfacial called contempt. And he's not very happy with what she's telling the people that are around the table. That's my observation with her. At 0700, Coop takes the ring, Kathy's ring from Maryland, and he immediately grins and gets a far off look on his face like he's living in the past. I've watched a lot of interrogation videos and a lot of people who are involved in crime or in murders When they get a piece of evidence or a piece of a victim back in their hands, it really makes them happy. It gives them a sense of elation, a sense of joy, and they instantly start thinking back whatever's going through their mind. And that's exactly what happens to Coop when he takes that ring. He gets this kind of sheepish grin on his face, and it's creepy and unnerving. But you'll notice that at 0700. And at 0730, while listening to Marilyn speak about how she didn't know any of this about Kathy, Coop is stroking his lip area and his brow is furrowed. This is my opinion. He's thinking of what does she know or what could she possibly know? He has that serious look on his face. What is she thinking? What could she find out? What does she know? Does she know something I don't? That's the look on his face when he's just stroking his lip area with the furrowed brow. And at 8.50, notice Marilyn has her hand on her face. And I just wanted to point this out. The difference with Marilyn and touching her face, she's not really touching it. Her hand is still. So if anyone has the question, Marilyn was touching her face. No, when you have a hand on your face, leaning on your hand, it's totally different when it's moving. When you're moving your hand across your face, you're soothing yourself. You're experiencing stress. Just that stroking of your face or any part of your face area is soothing to you. So that's the way people relieve stress. Whereas Koob, his hand is stroking his mouth area, which is a self-soothing gesture, like I just said. He's feeling a little stress at that moment. But compare the two, you'll see what I mean. At 0903, notice the look on Koob's face. Where is he? What is he thinking? He's checked out. Koob's wife is also soothing herself by rubbing and twisting the water bottle in her hands. Observe this scene. Pause the keepers at this scene at 0903. All of them are in the scene at once. Marilyn, Koob's wife, Diane, and Koob himself. And it's a very interesting scene to watch. From 902 until, I think it's 909. He's checked out. And it's almost, what's that, seven, eight seconds? And he looks like he's in another world. What is he thinking? He's not even engaged in the conversation. And he's just checked out. And you'll see that. Just pause that on your TV screen. And you can see that whole scene. And you can say to yourself, well, what's Coop doing? He's not even participating in the conversation. And at 1042, Coop states, neither of us knew about this abuse stuff as part of the context until 1994. While he's saying this, his palms turn up. He turns up his palms like, I didn't know anything about this. The palms turning up is a sign of open. I'm trying to be open with you guys. And I'm telling the truth. I didn't know anything about it. Usually at the sign of deception, he's saying I have nothing to hide. And I just to go back on that thing, I just talked about the three things going on in that scene with Marilyn, Diane, and the coup. If you watch, Marilyn's engaged. She's talking. Her hands are moving. Diane's stressed. She's got that water bottle in her lap. She's rubbing on it. She's ringing it. And she's stressed out about something. Don't know what it is. And like I said before, Coop is checked out. I'm repeating myself, but it's very important to watch that and see the different dynamic of that whole conversation. It's pretty interesting. Okay, so that's all I have on those scenes with Coop, Marilyn. And Coop's wife, Diane. Do you guys have any questions about any of that I talked about? I have a quick question. Uh, What did you mean by checked out? If you look at Coop, his eyes are downward and he's leaned back in his chair. He's not even listening. His face is blank. And he's got his wife next to him. He's got Marilyn actually talking with her hands moving. And she's totally engaged, telling the story or whatever she's talking about. And he's just staring straight ahead at an angle. He's staring right at the table. And like, where is he for almost like eight seconds, nine seconds? It's kind of kind of crazy. He's kind of lost in thought. And it's interesting to watch. Like you think he would be making eye contact with any of the speakers in the room. It's just interesting to watch that. I
3: have a question about that. Maybe you can clarify. Is that indicative of somebody who's trying to think, okay, What does Marilyn know? What does Diane know? Who knows what and what's safe for me to say or not say? Scrambling for an anchor, like safe place to talk.
1: Yeah, I think what Coop is doing, he's off somewhere thinking about Kathy, thinking about the whole situation. And he is, his mind's racing and he's probably not even listening to Marilyn. He just has this hum off to the side. And he's just mm-hmm. trying to go back in time. I don't know what he's doing. But the minute he saw that ring, he was like in that same space. Yeah,
3: yeah. I was there that night. It was at a hotel at the airport,
1: which oh, okay. is
3: where Marilyn was staying. And the Coobes came that evening. And pretty much the first thing he asked was, did you bring the ring? Yeah. Almost the first thing. Also, when the comment was made to Marilyn... I'll never forgive your family for the way they treated me when Kathy died. This was like right off the bat, almost like she owed him the ring and an apology, which she did not. Yeah, it was very interesting. And I was, for once, I was quiet and on the sidelines.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I don't know what Coop's wife was really showing a lot of stress. And I don't know. If it's because of the situation, the cameras, or whatever, but it's interesting to watch. Like I said, the whole dynamic of that eating, the different expressions, the different body language, and you'll see what I mean when you really take a look at that. Pause oh, for a minute.
0: The detective came and knocked on the door,
3: and I said, "Is it Renee?" And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. Twenty-three years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. If It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack.
1: You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. Been judging me my whole life.
3: You can listen now to season two of Proof wherever you get your podcasts, and follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you
0: kill Renee?
2: BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.
3: Yeah, we all had dinner together. It was interesting because the two women, Marilyn and Diane, Of course, Marilyn is the most gracious person I've ever met. And Diane is very sweet, but they sat like next to each other and spent so much time looking at pictures of each other's grandchildren. It was like like a common bond for them. The rest of us were talking about other things, but that was something that I guess was important to both of them. And they were both making an effort to reach out to the other woman. That was just right, my fake right.
1: one. It. Yeah, it went on for a half hour. Yeah, yeah.
3: Just looking at the pictures. Yeah. Okay, mm. thanks.
1: Okay. All right, then there's a little bit on again, and we're going to move on to him. So picked up a few more on him and the few clips he was in. So we're going to look at Edgar at 2449, and he was asked about driving with both feet. And when they asked him that, he immediately began touching his face area, his again. Which is a soothing gesture. He's stressed out. He doesn't know what's going to come next. And he even said, you know, what does that have anything to do with anything? Something like that. What does that have to do with anything? And at 2501 asked back in the day, did you drive with two feet? He's still touching his lips and gives a small exaggerated yawn, which you'll see his mouth start to open like he's going to yawn. And then he just, then it just abruptly shuts. That's another stress indicator for him. It's interesting to watch. He's a textbook. He could actually be, and I think I've said this before, a training video for deception and stress indicators. This guy is just all over the place with his indicators, both verbally and non-verbally. Then he states, I had nothing to do with her disappearance her murder or anything. And that's one of our common things. It's a denial flag. And I've explained this before on the prior broadcast, the denial flag. Same as saying, I didn't do it. I swear I didn't. He denies everything about a disappearance or murder or anything. It's usually a strong sign of deception. It's like saying, I swear to God, I didn't do it. I swear on a stack of Bibles, all my children, all that. You know, when you have that strong denial, it's usually about the deception. That's what I picked up from Edgar. There wasn't much more on him. But that guy, in my opinion, was definitely involved in the whole murder and the whole staging and all that. That's just my opinion. And that's about all I have as far as indicators go on episode seven. But there's a few areas I'd like to touch on that kind of go back to episode six. I'd like to go over a few things about I've heard and I've read things about what I do and who I work for and all that. And a lot of it, most of it isn't true. I would say all of it isn't true. Aside from my federal training that I've been doing since 2008, I've had training in kinistic interview and interrogation. I've had training in the read technique of interview and interrogation. And all these courses I've taken, all this training is all this thing. This is a textbook case on all this stuff, interviewing people, picking out their behaviors, picking out all these different things. So those misconceptions about my job and what people are guessing I'm due and what I do are totally wrong. I just want to let people know that. I'm the one that does this job. No one really knew about this Netflix series that I worked with So I brought it up in our office one day, and I showed, especially Scanal, I showed Edgar, I showed Sharon May, and everybody I worked with, and that's a group of about 12 people. They all had the same conclusion as those three, the stress, the deception, just the outright lying right on camera and the fear was just almost like what I said earlier, like a training video. And they were actually in amazement at some of these things, especially Edgar. And everybody agrees with what I've said on this podcast that... Edgar and Scannell, totally involved. Lots of signs of deception. And also Sharon May, not involved with the crime particularly, but running all kinds of interference and blocking information and all that stuff, whatever she did. But 100% agreement that she was probably involved in some type of cover-up. But it's funny to get that many people to agree. And they were amazed. We were watching on our big screen TV. And they were amazed at some of this stuff. Doing this job, like I said, I don't want to give out who I work for and I don't want to give out most of my credentials. I gave some info about my training and all that just a minute ago. And if someone wants to waste their time digging around, good luck. They're not going to find anything about what I do. I just wanted to go over some of the things that people asked about on some of the podcast sites and stuff, and some of the comments. And I just want to go over to help explain to people so they will have a better understanding of what I've observed throughout this whole process.
3: May I ask you a question before you move on? I think we just heard you say that you actually do interrogations or interviews. I know there, what's Uh, the difference uh, between an interview and an interrogation?
1: We call them the same thing. Interview when you're just talking to someone, what I do anyway. I just talk to someone; it's informal. You can talk to them in an office. It's not being recorded. You're just trying to get some information. But when you're interrogating someone, you have a pretty strong likelihood that this person was involved in the crime. You're videotaping. You're watching for these signs, these indicators. You want to get information out of them. And like I said, there's so many times that opportunities were missed during interviews or interrogations when indicators are shown that you could have gotten more information by going down those rabbit holes.
3: And we talked about this a little bit before. Our filmmakers were incredible, but I didn't think they knew that they were going to have the opportunity to talk to some of these people for an extended length of time. So, for example, when we talked about Edgar, and we mentioned this the other night that Ryan is a wonderful director, Mm -hmm. but... If he had been trained in interrogation, it may have gone a different direction.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because if you had someone in there at the time and you can say, oh, we should have done this or they could have asked that because that was a while ago. But if you had someone to ask, like when you're talking to someone, for example, and you are you have them in an interrogation room or you have them in an office doing an interview, what have you, and they're pretty relaxed and talking to you freely, you know. And you present a question to them and it totally changes their demeanor. For instance, like you ask him a question and all of a sudden he's got this huge breath and this huge Adam's apple jump in his throat. When he sees a picture of Kathy, you want to go say in your mind, why did that trigger him like that? He must know more about this than what he's saying. Ask more questions about Kathy. You ask more questions about how he knew her ask more questions. Did he meet her at all? Did he know of friends of hers? Just anything to just get him talking. So that's when you see those eyes pop open like, all right, that changed his demeanor. What road can we go down now and ask him? That subject must be investigated more. So what you have to do, you have to come to a resolution and find out why that area caused a change in that individual's baseline. The baseline I talk about, and this might have confused some people earlier, is the person's baseline when you're interrogating them, when they're in the interview room. Like I said, if they're relaxed and they're not worried about anything and all of a sudden you hit a nerve, that's when their baseline, there's a change in it. There's a deviation from their baseline. Okay. So that's right. when you want to explore that.
3: Stuff. I also noticed yeah. that when they asked him a couple questions, they said something about, did you have anything to do with Kathy's murder? He said, no, like right away. Like Right away. Like just the word no. Is there some significance to that?
1: Yeah, yes or no answers can be a sign of deception because you don't want to give any information. But the thing with that was the finger instantly covered his mouth. Do you have any information? Do you know who killed Kathy? The same, they were like mirror images of the same thing. His finger went right over his mouth exactly when the words came out. That's I I don't mean to laugh, but that's total textbook that in a training video of his mouth when speaking, because you don't want that information to come out. So your brain splitting saying, no, don't say it. So the brain sends the finger over, and I've said this before, and he denies it. And so the brain goes, okay, we're safe. He didn't say it, you know? Mm-hmm. And he chose many clusters too, which I've mentioned before, the pre-confession mm. mission cluster.
3: Some of those are like, they're extremely obvious, right?
1: Extremely, yes. Okay,
3: they're not just subtle. They're like no. out there. Yes. Okay. I do have one more question before you go back to the other episodes, if you don't mind, okay. about episode seven. Okay. Episode seven is the one where Charles and Jean are talking, but they don't know about the other person. And as a comparison, did you have any sense of Charles Brand's demeanor during the time that he was talking? Like a sense of how he was feeling or his, because the church has been really adamant that he's not telling the truth and we believe he is. And I'm just
1: wondering what your perception was. I would say that he definitely is telling the truth. He's not showing, granted, he wasn't really being interviewed. He wasn't being interrogated for a crime or anything, but you could see, and when you've been doing this for a long time, you can really read people's faces. You can read the way their eyes look. And to me, He had a really deep sadness in his look.
3: I was Um, just going to say that. So sad.
1: Very sad. When he talked, he was very clear. He had his no hesitation, no indecision. He was just stating what he had been through. And the guy had no indicators other than maybe a little stress, which is acceptable because when you're going back and telling what happened to you when you were a small boy. Yeah, it's going to make you a little uncomfortable to relive that. But there was nothing over the top. He was pretty steady. His behaviors were constant. And the guy didn't want to be called a liar. You can see it in his face. The guys tell him the truth, you know.
3: And I don't know if you were aware that he was my neighbor. He lived right across the lawn. And I didn't know that he was involved in all this until somebody else told me and I went over and talked to him and then he came over and met with the filmmakers. Towards the end, they're filming. But yeah. I almost sensed in that last scene like a sense of almost desperation that he was so sad that he had to accept that they were never going to believe him. Right. And yet he was still trying to... It's like somebody who's out on a raft, alone, like he's still trying yeah. to make himself understood i don't know i think it was so poignant and
1: right.
3: he's not had an easy time since this series came out
1: yeah and when when they asked him what does he want he want to vote they just want to do what's right just yeah. do what's right he didn't yep. want anything from them he didn't Mm-mm. want anything he just wanted for them to admit what had happened didn't. and you see it in his eyes he was getting almost a little emotional just do what's right I totally want it simple. I believe the guy 100%.
3: Yeah. Thanks for that perception because I think a lot of people felt the same way. And I just, I think it's an interesting comparison to the other people who were so deceptive.
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I want to say the same thing about Jean too. When she's speaking, again, she wasn't interviewed or anything, but she can tell she's genuine. You can tell she's telling the truth 100%. And whoever doesn't believe her, I don't know, you can just go ahead and go away because she's telling her story and she's 100% truthful and I feel so bad for her and you can see it in her face too. She's just telling her story and if she's showing any kind of stress, that's a little bit acceptable. You can take that in and say, yeah, I would be a little stressed, a little emotional telling that story too. No fear, no deception from her or any of the survivors. They're just telling their stories, and they're 100% truthful, in my opinion.
3: Thanks. That clarifies a lot, I think, for all of us.
1: Okay, so we're going to go into episode six with Coop. There's there's an interesting part of this clip that I want to go over with in Coop in episode six. And the timestamp is 5155. And he states as he's walking down the hall in some type of church, whoever did this is guilty and has lived a miserable life because of it. That's a direct quote from Coop in the series. Now, in my training, when someone says something like that, they usually know a lot about something they're not saying or they're guilty themselves or know the party that is involved. Koob also states the first person to forgive him, the killer, would be Kathy. Now, he's putting himself in Kathy's shoes saying, yeah, she would forgive him for killing her. First of all, very strange statement to make. I believe the person that did this is guilty. And I think that we can all agree that's kind of strange. Of course, he's guilty. He murdered someone. And second, I don't know if there was a question asked, but he stated that Kathy, like I said, would forgive the killer. This is usually a deceptive statement. Usually, a guilty person or a person who knows something more will usually lean toward leniency or forgiveness, to give that person another chance. And he states that. He states it almost verbatim. Oh, Kathy would, but he's putting himself in Kathy's shoes. She would forgive him. It's a name for it. It's called a second chance response. Second chance response is the same thing he's saying. So when you have someone in an interrogation room, you say, what do you think should happen to the killer? Someone that's guilty or involved in the crime will usually say, oh, they should be even leniency. Maybe they need counseling. Maybe they should be put on some type of program. And that's exactly what he's saying. She would forgive him. It's an odd thing. It's called a second chance response. Most people would say, oh, her killer deserves the death penalty. Her killer deserves to be locked away, life in prison. And that's a strange thing for him to say. And I just saw it's a textbook thing. I read up all about it. And it's a second chance response. And it's strange. So in my opinion, Coob again, I've said this before, he knows a lot more than what's coming across. And Tom Nugent said, he's a smart guy. And he said that. And I agree. He does some strange stuff, which leads you to believe definitely that he knows a lot more than what he's saying. And he, I just He's a very tough guy to read, but he slips up now and again, and he's got these strange mannerisms that just come across to me as strange. Instead of saying he says him, which indicates to me he may be speaking of something specific he knows about. He said Kathy would forgive him. It's strange to say him or I don't know. It's just a whirlwind for this guy. I can't get a finger on him, but definitely knows more than what he's saying. All right, a little bit about, uh, I don't know, and I might be, a lot of people might be with me on this about Diane Coop. She's very stressed out. She shows a lot of stress indicators. Like I said, she wasn't interviewed or anything, but when she was talking to the camera, she got emotional. She stated if he had been involved, she'd want to brought you light. At the same time, she was shaking her head. The verbal message doesn't match the gesture. She displayed a little bit of an exaggerated emotion. She got a little emotional. After stating she wasn't in, she was pretty confident that he wasn't involved. But I don't know. I might be grabbing at nothing right here. But she may know he might have confided in her. I have no idea. But she just acts very stressed a lot. That's all I have for uh, those things. But as far as Coup, given that second chance response, very strange to me in my experience.
3: She went with us the day that we went over to the Carriage House Apartments. If you remember that whole situation where Coop walked us around and pointed out things, she held back. And I don't believe she was even in the camera at all, but she kept saying to us, this is so good for him. This is so therapeutic Mm -hmm. for him. She said it like multiple times. She held back and we were all trying to be appropriate and respectful of people's privacy and their emotions, but there was a whole bunch of us there. And I thought it was interesting that she was really pretty much removed from everything that her husband was talking about doing. I don't know if that's significant or not, but it was almost, I felt like she was his (laughs) mom's. Yeah. Why. Yeah. I don't know. How, I don't know how else to say it.
1: Sometimes you you get those gut feelings and they're usually right. And in my experience, in my field, they yeah actually tell you. But your gut feeling is usually right. Hmm. The term actually is called thin slicing. And when you thin slice someone, when you're talking to someone and getting that gut feeling, it's your mind. It's automatically assessing someone, and Whatever experiences you've had in your past has Mm -hmm. happened, however you judge people or whatever has happened, your mind does this. Your subconscious does this automatically. You're already getting information from people and that gut feel is usually 98% of the time correct. And what is it called? It's called Thin Slicing. You can read about it in that book, The Truth About Lying.
3: Okay, yeah. We need to tell people that book is so... Easy to understand. Isn't it, it's not yeah. real technical.
1: Yep. The truth about great, lying. Yeah. It's a great book. Great book. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate like I said earlier at the beginning of that this experience was great and I really appreciate you guys for letting me in. I just want to say all the observations of all these the major characters in this story come from my many years of training and the actual experience on the job. When people are being interviewed or interrogated. The indicators that present themselves, both verbally, non verbally, their actions, their mannerisms, and even the involuntary ones, I can spot them pretty easily. There's sometimes where I don't see it and have to go over things again. That's all I have to do is observe these. Unfortunately, many of these indicators, like we talked about a while back, or a few minutes ago, they went unanswered. Better questions could have been asked, more rabbit holes could have been explored. If only the interviewers like Ryan had more knowledge and our training how to do that. I believe, in my opinion, that much more detailed, if not more confessions may have been brought to light. And like we said, it was a great series. It was done well. Ryan did a great job. I think everybody did. But I do stand by all my observations and opinions of the major players that are in the story. I believe the ones I named I'm going to say them again. I'm going to say Scannell. I'm going to say Sharon May. I'm going to say Edgar. I'm going to say Coop. I believe they were all actually involved, especially Edgar and Scannell. There's just too much for me to even doubt it. Unfortunately, as everyone knows, most and many of them have passed away, except the one. And I believe, in my opinion, he knows a lot more, like I said a few minutes ago, than he's saying. I believe Sister Russell knew a lot too, obviously. She knew whether she was threatened, her family, no idea of knowing, but she definitely had some secrets to tell or some information to give, but we'll never know, unfortunately. And I think that anybody that's, in my opinion, that's searching for closure for this can really believe that Edgar Spinell. We're involved directly. And I also believe that Hoob knows much more than he comes across as knowing. This is my opinion and my experience. All I can do is hope that one day it comes to light. I hope this case can be solved. I think it will. I don't know what they have, but I hope it comes to light. And All I can say is God bless Sister Kathy and her family, and I hope this all comes to fruition day. And that's, uh, that's about all I have for the last episode.
3: Please, anybody who knows anything, you can report anonymously. We can help you get in touch with the right person. The attorney general was doing a criminal investigation into clergy abuse. The FBI and the police department are handling Kathy's case. They are not finished with it. I'm begging you, somebody out there that's hearing this knows something. They might not think it's important. And every time somebody gets in touch with one of us and says, I don't think this is important, but it is. Look at what happened with Sharon Bush. She had a lot of information about the night before and the day after. I am begging you in Kathy's name, to please get in touch with somebody that can help you and, or me or Shane, and we will put you in the right hands. We will protect you. So right. Mike, we so appreciate everything you have shared with us. You have no idea what this means. Thank
1: you. Thank you guys. I appreciate it. And like you said, it can be the smallest bit of information. If you remember something, if you went yep. to that school, Anything, Mm -hmm. even the smallest little bit of information can turn things around. Any memory or anything like that, just come forward and let Shama, Shane, anyone know, the police, anyone. I know about being Catholic and I know the guilt associated with it. So if you're feeling guilty about coming forward, if you're feeling guilty about telling someone about a priest that abused you in Baltimore or wherever, just don't be afraid come forward and you could bring people to justice and put an end to this thing.
3: Yeah, Thank you, Mike.
1: Yep. All right, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me once again. Yeah. Thank mm, you so thanks. much, Mike, for your time. Yep. Thanks.